for the last couple of uh, weeks, our family has been out uh, west in Washington State visiting our extended families uh, in Seattle on the coast and then uh, Spokane and eastern uh, Washington. And it's always a blessing uh, to be able to uh, see our extended families, uh, not only because of the familial ties, but because a number of our family members are uh, devout uh, believers uh, in Jesus Christ. But one of the unexpected blessings, which I'm often reminded of when we are away from here, is the tremendous blessing of the local body of Christ with whom one belongs, uh, with whom uh, one worships, with those fellow brothers and sisters, with whom we serve, uh, with whom we uh, share life together, with whom we share particular distinctives uh, that are uh, things that we cherish so much. Uh, We all need a place uh, to belong. And uh, on that note, before we jump into First and Second Thessalonians, our new series next week, I want us to consider a passage from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus this morning on the theme of unity from Ephesians 4. It's a familiar passage to, I'm sure, many of us. Uh, maintaining the unity of the faith. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read the first 16 verses. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you've read or you've examined Paul's letters before, you perhaps already know that he often demonstrates a particular structure in several of his letters, a particular pattern in his writing. And that is, he first lays down uh, statements of truth and statements of doctrine. 
followed by statements of application that are to shape our lives. So he moves from uh, what people would call the indicative to the imperative. Truth statements to commands. And that structure and form is likely seen no clearer than here in his letter to the Ephesians, where in the first three chapters, Paul lays down one truth after another about the grace of God, about the transforming work of Christ in the life of the church. So in chapter 1, he emphasizes God's saving grace, our election. We've been chosen to be the Lord's before the foundation of the world. He emphasizes our redemption through the shedding of Christ's blood. Into chapter 2, we have those powerful statements about the grace of God, that though we were dead in sin, he made us alive in Christ. By grace, he says, you've been saved. At the end of 2, through chapter 3, he reminds these believers that while they were once not the people of God, they've been brought near, Jew and Gentile, one in Jesus Christ, one new man in the Lord. And then at the end of chapter 3, Paul uh, breaks into that doxology of praise, moved himself by God's extraordinary work. And so he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory. And you could imagine, in some ways, this letter simply ending at the conclusion of chapter 3. He has communicated to these believers these wonderful and powerful truths. He has ended chapter 3 with praise and and doxology. But we know, of course, the letter does not end there. What does Paul do? He sharply transitions from chapter 3 into chapter 4, into the text that we've heard. How should these truths take shape in the life of the church? And he clearly indicates that transition with the word therefore in the first verse of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I believe in chapter 4 is the first imperatives that come in the letter. And so this word, therefore, is communicating that the application I'm about to share with you and offer to you and exhort you in is all based and founded upon what I have said already in chapters 1 through 3. And I think it is telling that in a letter that many commentators identify as having no alarming issue, no major problem, unlike uh, the letters to the church in Corinth or his letter to the churches in Galatia, no major problem that Paul is addressing. Yet the first and perhaps primary application that Paul drives home is what? Unity in the body of Christ. It's at the forefront of his mind. I urge you to walk in a worthy manner. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again in verse 12 and 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And then verse 16, through Christ, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint, each part working properly. Paul's not only calling for unity, but he's using and employing this metaphor of a body, a physical body, to illustrate 
what unity actually looks like. A helpful metaphor. Again in verse 16. From Christ, the head, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint. I imagine the picture of, a, of an athlete or a baseball pitcher. He knows exactly what pitch he wants to throw. He knows exactly what spot over the plate he wants to throw it. And then all directed from his mind, envisioning it, his body begins to move, the wind-up, his feet, his rotation, hips, his arms, fingers, his follow-through. It's all working together as he envisions. The scriptures provide various metaphors to communicate what unity is and what it looks like. Even in this letter earlier in chapter 2, verse uh, 22, uh, Paul says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God uh, by the Spirit. The church is pictured as a temple or dwelling place. So we corporately, as the people of God, become a habitation for God to dwell Jesus uses in John 15 the image of the vine and the branches uh, to communicate our unity together in him. Notice that this unity uh, produces a progressive result. Uh, Through unity, what happens? The body grows. The body develops. It's not static. Verse 12, uh, equip the saints for ministry for building up the body of Christ. And then Paul contrasts uh, the growing person, the growing church, uh, mature manhood is what he says, verse 13, from the child in verse 14, who's simply tossed here and there by false teachings and deceitful schemes. So for proper growth to occur in the life of the believer and the church, unity is a necessity. I was reminded this past week that as Christians and as the church, we are called not to be consumers, but communers. Good way to think about it. Uh, We live in a very consumeristic uh, society and culture, constantly consuming, perhaps consuming entertainment that comes from uh, the screen, consuming food that comes from the market, consuming clothing that comes from the store. At the click of a button, Amazon will bring to you whatever you want, I think, the next day. The Y, YMCA, or 24-Hour Fitness, will offer you a membership not to belong to a particular group of people, but simply to use their equipment. Costco or BJ's will offer you a membership not to belong or share fellowship, but to shop for their goods. Our society in many ways is set up so that one can possess all that their heart desires and wishes without truly belonging anywhere or to anyone with any kind of depth. But the church is offering a completely different kind of membership. It is one where we are able to belong and to commune. That's what the local church, in part, is to be about. Putting down roots to know a greater depth. That's what we need to grow. It's what we need to fight against fickleness 
or living at a mere surface level. And it's what we need to grow uh, in unity, to know the gift of unity. We must ask, what, how does Paul define unity? What, what defines this unity? Think how important this is for there are many things and there are many circumstances uh, that can divide and disrupt the church of Christ. So what is it that unites us, that unites the true church? Is it our diversity? Diversity is a tremendous value in our society. It seems to be perhaps what is celebrated most. Perhaps a diversity of ethnicity, a diversity of sexual orientation, a diversity of worldviews, of trends, of fads. And while the church of Christ may be diverse, and indeed it is, perhaps the most diverse ethnically around the world, It has a diversity of gifts, we see in this passage here. There's a diversity of generations, of cultural backgrounds. Yet at the heart of what unites the church is that God's people all share in the same redemption. It's the same redemption. The same blood that was shed for you was shed for me. The same God you call upon in prayer, your Father, I can call upon in prayer as my Father, our Father. The same Spirit that indwells you, the Spirit of Jesus Christ that guarantees your inheritance to come, is the Spirit that indwells all of God's people. This is what Paul's driving home there in verses 4 to 6. There's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's one God, Paul says. God is not divided. He is one God. But he has revealed himself in a plurality of persons. Three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a diversity or plurality of persons, but he is one. He's one in in purpose, one in uh, essence, one in mind. And and on both ends of this passage here in Ephesians 4, Paul drives home unity, oneness. Back in chapter 2, he emphasizes the uh, unity between Jew and Gentile, that they have come together to form one new man in Christ. On the other end, chapter 5, Paul, in addressing the marriage relationship, quotes from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage reflects the union of Christ to his people. The church itself, in its unity, is to reflect the oneness of God. So what kind of people uh, contribute or sustain or maintain unity? Well, there's at least two characteristics about these people to whom Paul is writing. People who uphold unity. First, I would say that it is deep people who uphold and maintain unity. That is, people of a particular character. And we see that in the opening verses. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he lists four characteristics with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience and bearing with one another in love. These four characteristics, we might call them four graces, are what characterize or are to characterize God's people. And that serves the end, which is unity in the Spirit. So, what is to characterize this congregation for Paul is is not a call to be the smartest people or to be the highest class of people or to be greatly accomplished people. It is to grow ever deeper in these graces. And those four, humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance, we see perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and ministry. And we can call them graces. They are the result of God's work in us. They're they're not a part of our natural disposition, and they're certainly not a part of our culture. I don't think our culture is saying, be humble. I think it's saying, be proud. Be proud. It's not saying, be gentle. It's saying, be rough, be rigid, have your way. It's not saying, be patient and bear with others. Rather, serve your own ends. And, and that has actually crept into uh, churches, or I might say so-called churches. Just weeks ago, I saw on the outside sign of a liberal church, not far from our own home, and the outside church sign had three phrases. The first, be yourself, period. Next line, be proud, period. Third, love wins period. Knowing a little bit about this church, knowing its liberalism, I had to interpret for myself, and this is how I am interpreting the words. Be yourself. You determine who you want to be and what your identity is, and there's no wrong way. There's only a right way. Be yourself. Be proud of that. Now express who you are, and feel good about it. You determine who you are and make it known. And love wins. People should accept that. Demand that others accept your self-determined identity no matter what it is. Paul's words are the opposite. They are calling not for a focus on yourself, but on others. Humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance are all to serve first others before ourselves. And all of that is to serve the end, which is unity in in the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit. I think what an important and relevant verse for us in this historical uh, moment. To be sure, there is much, certainly in this past year, that uh, could divide God's people. Differing views or convictions about uh, governmental actions or mandates. Varied concerns and perspectives about physical health, mask wearing, vaccinations. Differing political uh, persuasions. The list of issues that could and at times does divide God's people, it's not a short one. And the matters that I just mentioned are not unimportant. But if the central matters... If the most important matters, worship of God, loving 
one another and demonstrating that, encouraging one another in the faith, advancing the gospel to the lost, extending mercy to the helpless, growing in fellowship one to another. If those things don't unite God's people, lesser matters will divide God's people. This is why Paul's words in verse 3 have a sense of great urgency. Verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice that this unity is not something you actually create. It's already there. The unity already exists by virtue of Christ's work of redeeming us and uniting us to himself and to one another. We're not called to create it. What's the call? Maintain it. To keep it. Keep it. It's a work of maintenance. I'm going to wager most of us don't enjoy the work of maintenance. Whether it's maintenance on our cars or chores at home. But it's necessary work to keep order. And not only does he say maintain unity, but he says be eager. That word eager means earnestly striving. Giving diligence. It carries the idea of great exertion. Being watchful. Why would Paul write this unless he knew division was possible? Uh, We emphasize in our tradition, and I think wonderfully so, the sovereignty of God. Yet the sovereignty of God does not prevent some professing believers in churches to spiral to the point of becoming what our confession calls synagogues of Satan. So Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But there's something else that characterizes those who pursue and advance unity and maintain it. They're not just deep people. They're not just people of a particular character. They are gifted. They are gifted people. Unlike the world, the church is uniquely gifted by Christ to live as one. In harmony, functioning as a single body. Sometimes we use the word uh, gifted uh, for people who are kind of a notch above the rest. Under, understandably, some people, uh, the measure of Christ's gifts, he pours out in a certain kind of measure. But Paul says in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes from Psalm 68. There in verse 8, that is a quote from Psalm 68. It is a hymn of celebration recalling God's care and victory, leading his people through the wilderness, protecting them, and then overcoming their enemies and distributing the spoils among his people. Paul takes that psalm, those words from that psalm, and he adapts and he applies them to Christ, our victorious Lord and Savior, who ascended and who leads his people, and who distributes and gives gifts, the spoils to us for the sake of building up the body. That's the picture. And so he lists some of them. Apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds. Indeed, he gifts all of us to grow, to unite, until we all attain, verse 13, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. An amazing statement and picture. The fullness of Christ. 
in all of his human nature, his divine nature? What is his fullness, his supreme power, his gentle love, his ultimate authority, his tender mercy, his watchful care, his awesome majesty? His fullness is not something we can fully grasp, but it's what Paul wants us to grow in knowing and experiencing and cherishing. To know the fullness of Christ. And the people of God contribute to that, knowing that by using the gifts that Christ has given to them. Some of you have the gift of encouragement. Some the gift of counsel. Some the gift of mercy. Some the gift of stewardship. The gift of sympathy. The gift of generosity. I was told years ago, uh, your, your gift is, is like a drum. You keep beating that drum. That's the gift you've been given. Right? That, that function in the life of the body. Where does all this lead? Verse 15. We grow up in every way into him, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together, each part working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul's painting a picture here. A proper unity and function is fueled by love. So, Grasp the picture of the body. Each part is not only active, but there's another ingredient. It's what, it's what love contributes to. Not only active participants, but there is a harmonious aspect. Now the members are not only active, but they're harmonious with the others. So they're not only serving active, but they're relating to the other parts in such a way that it is creating something harmonious, beautiful, lovely in that way. I think this is, this is part of what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love. If I speak in the tongues of angels or have prophetic powers or have all faith, but have not love, I'm just making noise. So it's about how those parts are relating that creates the unity, the harmony, and the beauty. So our call is to make a harmonious sound. I think the church uh, is very much like a symphony. It's in the midst of a world, though, full of division, full of conflict. But we're called to make that sound, a beautiful sound, uh, in the midst of this world that it would be pleasing uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for uh, your word revealed to us. We pray that your word by the work of your spirit would press uh, the truth of your word, the authority of your word, uh, deep down into our hearts. Lord, how we thank you for uh, preserving us as your people. We pray that you would continue to grow us individually and as a body. We pray that you would guide each one of us, Lord, as we serve out our part in the glorious body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the love and harmony that is here and evident in this particular congregation. 
Give us joy, Lord, in the call to maintain it and to keep it. To bring glory to your name. That the world would see uh, the brightness, uh, the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. Continue, Lord, to uh, feed us as your people. Not only from your word, but from uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.